Got a minute? Huh? I'm going to say a word. You tell me what comes to mind. Are you ready? Okay. Tchaikovsky. Gesundheit. Okay. What's the word? No. See, that is the word. What does Tchaikovsky make you think of? I don't know. Allergy season? Uh, hey there. How you doing? What's up? Who's Martha Graham? Mm, she invented the graham cracker. No kidding. Yeah. Before her, there was only soda crackers. Hard to imagine. Uh, hey, young lady. Yeah. Uh, does the name Man Ray mean anything to you? Ta. The man ray is a kind of poisonous jellyfish, and it lives in the Gulf of Mexico. Aha! It's very deadly. Are your kids as well-rounded as they could be? Kids who participate in the arts do better in school and in life. To learn more about the value of arts education, visit americansforthearts.org. Because all kids should get to appreciate Tchaikovsky's music, Martha Graham's dance, and man ray's photography. Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Well, hello, Power Partners. Welcome to Radio's finest program of positive book talk, the Hour of Power. We call it Star Style. Be the star you are. And I'm Cynthia Bryan, your personal growth success coach here on the airwaves with you every week, bringing you the authors, the experts, the professionals to help you enjoy a more fulfilled life while experiencing the happiness, the failures, and then, of course, discovering things from the pioneers on the planet. So get ready to pump your energy, love, learn, laugh, listen, and hopefully you will live your dreams through some of these books and the positive media. We're a show about following your heart, Champagne for the Spirit, brought to you by Be the Star You Are Nonprofit Corporation, produced by Star Styling Productions. Well, this is a sizzle show today, and we have the steam turned up quite a few notches. In just a moment, you're going to meet author and photographer Stephanie Klein, who lived a singles life that rivals anything that Sex in the City could ever show you. She bears it all with her fantastic book, Straight Up and Dirty. Then you're going to meet New York Times bestselling author Sina Jutter Nasland when she enchants us in segment two with her opulent and rich detailed book, Abundance about the life of Marie Antoinette. And in our Tea for Two, a mother-daughter brew segment, Heather Brittany and I discuss the myths and the truths around feminism in Femtalk. The miracle moment for today is brought to you by Star Style Productions for the top life and lifestyle coaching anywhere. Call 925-377-STAR to set up your appointment by phone or visit star-style.com. And this is from an unknown author, but it's a terrific miracle moment quote. It's important to let people know what you stand for. It's equally important to let them know what you won't 
stand for. Well, that brings us to our first guest, Straight Up and Dirty by Stephanie Klein. It is a bowdy and refreshingly honest account of her life after marriage in Manhattan and her attempts to rediscover herself. Her book is, is Body is Brazen, and I promise you, you're going to blush as you romp through New York City with a beautiful young titillating divorcee on a manhunt. And the author, Stephanie Klein, is a globally renowned blogger, and the paperback version of her book, Straight Up and Dirty, just was released. Welcome, Stephanie, to Be the Star You Are. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Well, right off the bat, I want to say I love the cover of your book, how clever that is to have all these pictures of you and your life in little cutouts in circles. Of that It's just beautiful, and you're beautiful. What a great idea. Wow, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, um, of course your book is, uh, it's, it's, uh, we better get out, to, you know, if, if people are a little bit, um, what's the word, if you watch Sex in the City and you blush, you would definitely blush in your book. You lay it all out there. You Say right in the beginning to all the gals out there that this is a book of nonfiction, but some of the names have been changed to protect uh, the guilty, I should say. Mm-hmm. So is that really true? Is this truly nonfiction, or is that a falsehood? No, it's absolutely nonfiction. It's a memoir. It truly everything, is a memoir. Are you everything, it, on the, it is. Boy, you've, it was exciting. <laughs> everything getting, that's written in there actually did happen. I did change the names, though. Well, you know, but from getting a divorce in 2003 after feeling that you were married to Prince Charming and had the life of your dreams. You published the Straight Up and Dirty, the hardcover, in 2006, so you went really quickly from, uh, you know, being back into the single, sexy life to getting married, and now I understand you have twins. Exactly. How yeah. fun is that? It's, ama- it's amazing. It really is, and it's amazing how much you can learn. You know, I have girlfriends who are going through breakups now, and they, you know, of course they're... They're having a very hard time with it, and they say to me, I just reread your book, and it gave me strength. And, you know, one of the things that I remind them is sometimes you can wait a lifetime for something with one person that you can find very quickly with someone else. Well, you know, that's what I wanted to start off by talking about, is despite the the fun descriptions of your crazy waxings with uh, Hilda the Nazi and (laughs) all your sexy encounters and the crazy boyfriends and the romps on the town, I really found what this book is truly about. It's basically learning how to love yourself, to find the moments of solitude and to cherish them, and to really decide that you're number one. Yeah, I think a lot of people um, sort of cruise through life making dating their hobby of choice and scouring the online websites for, you know, basically window shopping for a partner. And then what I realized after I forced myself, sort of took a hiatus from dating, saying, well, what is it that's going to make me happy? Because I realized going through breakups and putting all my energy into these relationships that weren't working out, and I get so despondent afterwards, and I realized I need to put my energy into something else. And it's amazing that you're almost 30 years old. I was almost 30 years old when I wrote this. Yeah, so and you're starting to feel like, oh, my goodness, even I'm a divorcee, so young, but now I'm an old maid because I'm not married. Well, <laughs> I didn't have to feel that way because I was married. But, yeah, a lot of people, I'm sure, feel that way. But for me, it was, okay, I'm almost 30 years old, and... 
I don't even know what makes me happy and trying to figure that out and we take it for granted. Of course, you know, everything should make us happy. Mac and cheese makes us happy. But well, I need to find something when, when I read well. your book and I read the whole thing, I read it straight yeah. up and dirty, the whole from cover to cover, is it sounds like that you truly were in love with your first husband. But he, he sounds like he was so wrong from the get-go, from the really cranky, horrible um, parents. And, you know, well, maybe not his dad so much, but the mother-in-law was yeah. off the rocker. You yeah, do learn that after you go through it once, though, that your in-laws are definitely, you know, a lot of, a lot of the times people will say, well, you're marrying him. You're not marrying it's his not family. It's not true. Not true. Yeah, you marry the whole family. It's the whole kit and caboodle, right? Yep. Absolutely. And you can't you know, look, like I said in the book, you know, you, ha- you can't look at the egg corn. You have to look at the family tree. Right, right. You know, isn't that, that's something that my family used to always say to me is that you can't, you know, the acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. That was the, the yeah. saying. And so it's, I tell my own kids that. You ah, might look good from the outside, but look a little closer. You may not see what's going on. And that's what I liked about your book. It sounds like when you were growing up, that you didn't have a whole lot of self-confidence, although you had a dad who was so terrific to you and you and you really loved your mom and all of that, but you didn't have the self-esteem that you had to grow into after you had the breakup of the divorce and then several bad relationships therein. And it you had to actually tell yourself, okay, I'm done with dating, and that's when you meet the right guy. Right. I mean, I really had to, fo- I had to restrict myself, and I refused to date. I forced myself to instead put my energy into me. And, yeah, it is definitely about self-esteem. The hardest part, I think, about self-esteem is so many of us will say, okay, well, I want to work on my self-esteem. Where do I start? Like, how do I feel good about myself? I can tell myself I'm intelligent, I'm smart, I'm pretty, I'm beautiful, I'm funny, I'm smart, but I don't, I don't feel that way. I feel it. And making the jump from intellectually knowing something and emotionally feeling it is a journey in and of itself. Well, and that is why it's so critical that you take time for yourself. I don't think that you can find this out by just doing all the time. You have to really stop and start being. And and unfortunately, I think a lot of people say, oh, so much, like, off that self-help talk. And it is talk until you actually do the work and do it, and then you realize, wow, there really is a difference between. It's powerful. It's powerful. I, I really cracked up at your sister because uh, Leah, it sounds like she was just such a, a supporter of yours, but she was giving you all this you know, self-help talk, and then your phone therapist was telling you the same thing. And, and it's like you don't really want to hear it, but at the same time you know that there is something behind it. Right. Absolutely. I mean, people were saying, you know, take some time, don't jump into dating so quickly again, you know, let yourself heal. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's not going to happen. No, I it's not going to gonna happen. I mean, you were dating within a month of, uh, yeah. of, the, of breaking up with your husband. And what a horrible thing, the way that it happened. I mean, but it also sounds like you never had, like, a real wedding. It was more, do you feel now in hindsight that you were pushing him to get married, that he was always hesitant and that he just wasn't right? Yes, absolutely, of course. So, what, the um, love, there's a real lesson in that then, isn't it? Is that absolutely. we really need to take our time with our relationships and don't try to push the river, let it flow. Right, and you really do it, you know, at a certain point, have to respect how you feel also. So you need to say, well, these are my needs, and if they're not being met, maybe I need to leave. 
Okay. Sometimes so, you have the opposite. You know, someone will say, I want to be with you, I want to be with you, we'll get married soon, and they, you know, they don't set a date or whatever, and you realize that they're stalling. That's when you probably should say, I don't want to marry you because you're afraid to lose me. I want you to marry me because you're from, coming from a place of joy, not fear. Right. And that's a very important, important lesson. So how are all your girlfriends doing? Oh, they're so great. I mean, have they gone from what you loved and have they seen the mistakes that you made or that you all made together? And have, uh, have they moved on from it? A lot of my girlfriends are still living in New York, still single, still dating. Mm. So what's it like living in Texas now? I mean, you talk about Stephen, you know, Stephanie and Stephen and seeing that from the grandparents, but you've changed the name, right? Correct. Stephen yeah. okay. in the book is actually my husband, and that's his middle name. Okay. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. good. I love that. So, uh, but how's it now? That must have, was that a big jump? Because you were born and bred in New York. This was your life. Yes, and I was living in Manhattan for 13 years. Right. I, I cracked up that you had to have a phone therapist because, I mean, if you lived in Manhattan, you weren't going anyplace, and <laughs> not, you're not going to go over to the Bronx or someplace else. Right. And the fact that you had to, when you were on the online dating, actually people, somebody asked you Manhattan where. <laughs> right, That was exactly. pretty funny. Manhattan, New York, not Manhattan, Kansas. Exactly. I know. I know. I, I was like you. When I read that, I thought, is there a Manhattan, Kansas? I better look that up. <laughs> Didn't even know it. Well, let's talk a little bit about your blogging. Okay, so your book is straight up and dirty. But during this whole time that you were going through this, were you blogging then as well? Because I know now, and I've been to your uh, website, and it's really fun. You just lay it all out there on the line, what's going on, and you have hundreds of thousands of followers at your blog. Yes. It's, uh, yeah, on stephaniekline.com, I started it in 2004, and I was blogging about what it was like to return back to dating and finding myself and figuring out myself, and, and part of that journey was starting the blog. You know, as well as getting into photography, I decided I needed to invest, you know, my time and energy into myself, and part of doing that was starting the blog as a commitment to write every day. And I wrote it as if no one was reading it, as all blogs pretty much start. You think just maybe, you know, your sister's reading it, and then eventually it catches on and becomes popular, and you find yourself on the cover of the New York Times. Uh, was that uh, scary to you? Was that uh, did, So did they come to you to write the book then after they realized how popular your blog was? Well, more or, you, or less. Were you Basically, using the blog to write your book? No. Well, basically, I had written certain passages on the blog, and uh, the blog became popular, and I found myself on the cover of papers in London and then offered book deals based on that material. Then I put together a book proposal based off of the response that I was getting from the material and crafted a full beginning, middle, end book proposal and then signed a two-book deal with HarperCollins. That is great. Now, the two books, you have the hardcover version of Straight Up and Dirty. Now, this is the softcover. Is the second book going to be different, or was it a hardcover, softcover? It's hardcover, softcover, and it's called Moose, and it's based on my experiences at fat sleepaway camp. Right, you know, you you mentioned that at the very end. <laughs> I laughed at that because, uh, so we have to wait. I guess you're not going to tell us anything about that. 
Or are you going to give us... Oh, I can tell you a little bit. Okay, yeah. give us a little bit. It doesn't That's come out until next summer, but, um, yeah, it's just my experiences of basically the whole self-esteem and, and what parents can do, you know, when you're, you're going to them and you're saying, you know, the kids at school call me Moose, and you come home, I came home crying every day to my parents, and um, there was a particular moment where, you know, a father pretty much says to his daughter, like, don't worry about it, I love you no matter what, you, you know, it's what's inside that counts, and my father didn't do that. He laughed and he said, what a great nickname, Moose. And so I write about um, basically my experiences in trying to lose weight when I'm young and going to these sleepaway camps and, and basically what habits I learned. You know, you send someone away to learn good, healthy habits, and I learned unhealthy habits. And there was also the question of, you know, at home when you're overweight and you're spending a lot of time with the opposite sex, they want nothing to do with you. But when you go to a sleepaway camp where everyone's overweight and there are no parents around, suddenly, you know, kids start getting quite promiscuous. Um, just because it lifts their self-esteem. So, right, again, right, it's a right. book anchored so in self-esteem. now that you are a mother, how do you feel about your own journey through childhood and your own journey through singlehood, and what are going to be your words of advice for your kids? Oh, boy. That's I know, very they're young good. right now. So you haven't uh, thought about it, probably, but let me tell you, they grew up really fast. Yeah, well, I guess... You know, the best advice I was ever given is, and I also started at the beginning of the book, is, you know, tell the truth or someone else will tell it for you. And I really believe you can't go wrong with the truth. And I don't just mean telling people the truth, but also being truthful with yourself and realizing what your truth is and figuring out what it is that who your authentic self is and honoring that no matter what and not giving a crap what other people think of you. And that is, to me, the most important thing. I have this poem that I always say, and I gave this to my kids. It's, you mad at me, you hate my guts, you think I'm nasty, you think I'm nuts, tough, your problem. <laughs> and yeah. I think it's a good way to go through life is just believe in your own self and your own truth and be, be uh, clear with your own integrity. Well, it's a very fun uh, book. People should take this book and go to the beach or, or curl up as you talk about curling up by the fire and read it, whatever you want to do. But the name of the book is... Straight Up and Dirty, Stephanie Klein, and the cover is fantastic, and you'll see how beautiful she is. You're totally gorgeous, totally gorgeous. You can have, you know, I bet your kids are beautiful, too. Well, I'm so glad you're in a very happy marriage now, and I hope that this is uh, forever after. Yes. So do we. <laughs> so do you. Well, you know, as we know, it's a work in progress, right? Well, there's no guarantees in life. So. There are no guarantees, but every day is a new day. And exactly. so when we work at it and we believe that things can happen, we just have to make the magic happen. Well, Stephanie, great of success to you. Thank you for being on the show oh, and keeping you, straight up. I just love the way that you're so honest about everything and let it, letting us all into your most intimate details. I laughed a lot. You are, you're a great writer. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, Stephanie. Her name is Stephanie Klein. Go to stephaniekline.com. Check out her blog. Check out her book, Straight Up and Dirty. And, of course, we're going to be having The Moose, a memoir at Fat Camp, coming up soon. You're listening to Cynthia Bryan on Star Style. Be the star you are. We're going to France when we come back. Thanks, Stephanie. We'll be back in a minute. This business of show business is all I want to be. Dancing in a Broadway show on the silver screen. World Talk Radio. I'm Mary Hart, and this is Empowering America. 
She was born in Newark, New Jersey in 1924. She was blessed with a beautiful voice, and by 19, young Sarah had entered and won an amateur hour contest at Harlem's famous Apollo Theater. A year later, singer Billy Eckstein invited her to join his new group, featuring the legendary Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and Miles Davis. Sarah, now nicknamed Sassy, dazzled all with the amazing flexibility of her voice. At 20 years old, she cut her first record and was fast becoming a legend among her fellow musicians. She joined Mercury Records in 1954 and embarked on the most prolific years of her career. Over the next three decades, Sassy toured the world and cut more records, her last in 1987. Three years later, in 1990, Sarah Sassy Vaughn passed away, leaving a gaping hole in the world of music. Empowering America is sponsored by the Foundation of American Women in Radio and Television and is made possible by the generous support of AT&T. Caring for the communities where we live and work. Hear that? You just gotta love that sound. Really, it's one of this country's great treasures. The unmistakable sound of a nice California Chardonnay. There's nothing like it. Well, except of course for the sound of nails pounding lumber, building new homes across America, or steaks sizzling on the grill. In fact, 40% of American products are shipped by freight railroads. From computers to produce, we even carry trucks. Really, chances are the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. 70% of new American cars, 40% of the grain harvest. More Americans depend on us than ever. Freight railroads contribute more than 31 billion dollars a year to the U.S. economy. And since one freight train carries a load of up to 500 trucks, that means less fuel, less traffic. A better environment, a better tomorrow. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Business Bites. Here's Cynthia Bryan. When banking is safe, how often does the client say, well, here is my objection? Not often because objections are usually clouded in other questions. Here's how to deflect an objection. Repeat the prospect's question as accurately as possible. Make sure you are conveying a sincere interest in what is being said. Do not interrogate. For example, if the client said your product does not offer the quality I'm looking for, repeat this statement as a question. You feel that this product isn't the quality you're looking for? Then follow it with, tell me more about what you really need. Use open-ended questions. Ask who, what, when, where, and how. Gain the trust of your prospects by always questioning what you hear. Remember, you're the star of your own performance. Turn your passions into profits. I'm Cynthia Bryan from Star Style with another business bite. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Be the Star You Are showcases incredible authors and experts who enhance and inspire your life. Did you know that low literacy and communication skills have been identified as the major cause of conduct disorders, criminal behavior, and adolescent suicide? Be the Star You Are, a 501c3 charity, empowers family, women, and youth at risk by improving literacy and positive media such as this radio show. Be the Star You Are distributes books at no cost to these youngsters. To live and prosper in this society, we must be lifelong learners with access to knowledge to sustain our lives at work, at home, and in our communities. Please consider making a donation to Be The Star You Are. Go to bethestarur.org, keep the program on the air, and keep our kids with books. Well, thanks for staying.
staying with us. You're listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with me, Cynthia Bryan. If they have no bread, let them eat cake. It may be the most famous thing that Marie Antoinette never said. Marie Antoinette is probably one of the most maligned characters in history. Well, New York Times bestselling author Sina Jetter Nasland is a writer in residence at the University of Louisville. She's the program director of the Spalding University, the brief residency for the MFA in writing. And in her richly, richly detailed and complex books, Abundance, we get to see a different portrayal of this young Austrian girl who was doomed to the guillotine during Le Terreur. Well, welcome, Sena, to Be the Star You Are. Thank you, Cynthia. It's good to talk with you. Oh, you know, I studied at the University de uh, l'Université de Bordeaux en France. I studied in Europe, so I've always been attracted to everything that is French and the opulence, of course, of Versailles and the sad tale and fate of Marie Antoinette and her husband, uh, Louis the Sixteenth. It always intrigued me. But what you've done with Abundance, what a, an incredible first-person account, you know, in quotes, that you have written with Abundance because you have written it as if um, Toinette, as she liked to be called, was actually writing in her diary, was actually talking to us. And I know one of the things that you've said in the past is that you like to find things in common with your protagonist. Tell us about how you came about this relationship with Marie Antoinette and what fascinated you about her. Well, you know, Cynthia, when I set about to write this book, I felt that the story had been told from the historical perspective, but not from the personal perspective. So what I tried to do was to imagine myself Inside Marie Antoinette, can you hear me all right? Yes, I'm listening. Uh, um, inside Marie Antoinette's mind and uh, go about her daily life uh, with her. So I had to ask myself, well, how did she talk? What did she sound like? And I started out by reading letters that she had written to her mother over a 10-year period. When Marie Antoinette went away to France from Vienna, she never saw her mother again, but they did have a close and intimate correspondence. So that gave me an idea of how she uh, thought and talked, what she liked to do, um, who she considered to be an enemy, who she considered to be a friend at, at court. It gave me a real insight into um, the way Marie Antoinette's mind moved. I felt that I had some things in common with her. I do love classical music. I do love flowers. I do love my family, as she loved hers as well. And those things helped me to connect with her as well as uh, reading these letters that she had written. I also uh, read things that other people had said about her or heard her say during her lifetime. So several different people quoted her as saying one thing or another. I thought, well, she probably did say it, and it sounds like her anyway. So that uh, also helped me with the authenticity of the voice for Tonette and my novel, Abundance. Did you know, that's one of the things I'd never read that she liked to be called Toinette. Yes. And, and you made her, she was so human, and it was such a tragic figure because she'd always lived with such opulence, and although... It, it so appears that she cared. I mean, it seems like she really came to love this new country called France. And what I love so much about the way you wrote it is there seemed to be a very fondness between her and her husband, despite their early um, attempts at consummating their, rel uh, their relationship. They were so young, but they seemed to really care about each other. Yes, I think that's true, Cynthia. Um, 
Marie Antoinette wanted to be a good wife and wanted to be a good mother. When she first came to France, she was expecting to have the usual wedding night of intimacy with her husband, but he was not really interested in having a physical relationship with her for quite a number of years, nearly seven years. Uh, And this caused a lot of trouble because one of the main things Marie Antoinette was supposed to do was to produce an heir to the throne, and that would be sort of the seal on the alliance between Austria and France. This was a political marriage. She'd never seen him before. She, of course, couldn't love him except in a dutiful way. Uh, But she did do that, uh, and she was very uh, cheerful and wholehearted about wanting to do it. When she first came to uh, France, she was greeted in the little town of Strasbourg in uh, German by the mayor, spoke to her in German. And she stopped him and said, please do not speak to me in German. From now on, I wish to speak only French. And the crowd went wild with happiness that she was embracing them to this extent, that she only wanted to speak their language. She was 14 and a half years old when she said that. I think if speechwriters had been working, ten of them, <laughs> for hours and hours, they couldn't have come up with a more charming thing uh, for their princess to to say on that occasion. Well, the fact that you took so much of what the way that you wrote the it's you know it's like it's like reading a diary entry actually it's from the letters that she uh, the correspondence between friends and quotes that were from other people it it becomes so alive and you painted her in all her colors i mean she was she's so much a real person here and the sadness is is that she became a character that was responsible for so many things that she never did. I mean, when that was like that diamond necklace, when mm. that evil man stole the diamond necklace or, you know, by, uh, by falsifying her, her uh, name on paper, she took the blame for so many things. And the, and the famine, you know, no flour, no bread in France. Everybody blamed her because she was the outsider. She was the Austrian. Well, that's uh, exactly true. And while many people wanted the marriage to result in a more closeness uh, between the two countries, there were other people in France who really did not want this new alliance with Austria to succeed. They would have been very glad if Marie Antoinette had been sent back to her mother, Maria Theresa, the Empress of Austria. But Marie, Marie Antoinette was um, blamed and maligned in pamphlets at that time. People could um, get hold of a printing press and just run off a lot of leaflets and distribute them around, and it really was a practice that uh, ruined her reputation. When she didn't have children, since she wasn't having a sexual relationship with her husband, people began to say, well, it's because she's too busy uh, having affairs with other men and women, and uh, there was no evidence uh, for this, but they, uh, they simply lied about her. One time um, she wanted to see the sunrise, and she went out with a party of people. It was very well chaperoned, saw the sunrise, and for her that was a, a spiritual experience. But the first of the terrible leaflets appeared shortly after, and the leaflet described this as being a drunken orgy. Orgy, I know. You know, it made me so sad when I read that, because that, the way you wrote that segment, it was just so beautiful, and it was so obvious that she was so enjoying herself. And I thought, how wonderful that a queen could take, you know, her her chaperone and her entourage and sit out on the grass and actually experience a moment that, 
ordinary people experience. I mean, she didn't. There was no pomp and ceremony. But unfortunately, it was taken so badly. People. It, it was just totally misrepresented. But Marie Antoinette really got tired of the formality of court life. She didn't like all the artificiality, all the protocol, all the do's and don'ts of who says what to whom that characterized life at court. One of the things, the wonderful things that Louis the Sixteenth, her husband, did for her as soon as he became king, was to give her a little place on the estate to retreat to, and this was a house called the Petit Trianon, and there she um, could relax and have just the friends she really wanted to see instead of the people she was supposed to see, and they uh, made music together there. They played games together. Adults played games that children played nowadays at, at parties, like blind man's blood and uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, but it was a place where she could uh, let down her hair. and <laughs> Not literally. She kept her hair up, poofed pretty much of the time. But, but, but it was a place where she could relax and um, enjoy her friends. It's a, a beautiful little mansion uh, at Versailles. If any of our listeners ever go there, they must go down and, and see this very charming, tiny little palace that Marie Antoinette had. And that wasn't all. She also had created out back beyond that a whole little play village. It was built in the peasant style. It had a, a mill there. It had a lighthouse. Um, it had a pond for fishing and bridges and uh, gardens and places for doves to nest. And um, it was all brand new, but she had it painted with cracks so it would look as though it had been there a long time. <laughs> so she had imagination, and that's and this imagination, of course, is something... I identify with because as a novelist, I sort of create an artificial world and inhabit it. Well, you know, so what you've done here, this is a work of fiction and nonfiction because you had to create, you had to fill in some of the uh, blanks. You had to paint some of the canvases on there. That's right, but I've tried very hard to be historically accurate and none of the critics have um, faulted me in the slightest for uh, misrepresenting or distorting uh, things in the life of Marie Antoinette. I, I do a lot of research. I went to Versailles and lived in a place within walking distance of the palace. I would go over nearly every day and, well, shall we say, visit my gardens and my well, estate. What, how was that? To do? Did you feel when you were writing this? Because, I mean, I really felt like you, I felt like Marie Antoinette was speaking to me. And this was one of these books, Sana, that I really didn't want to end. I, you know, even though I knew the ending, I wanted to change the ending. <laughs> well, I'm so glad. Uh, many people have told me that they kept hoping somehow it would turn out differently. But although everyone knows you, you know, you can't change history. Marie Antoinette did die under the guillotine uh, at the time of the French Revolution. But one of the things that drew me to the Marie Antoinette story was the fact that everyone agrees, even critics who didn't like her much, that she met her death with extreme courage and grace. I thought, well, of course we're all looking at the great guillotine in the sky, and maybe there's something I can learn here about facing up to the fact of mortality, which she certainly uh, did. When she was going up the steps of the scaffold, she stepped on the foot of the executioner. She stopped and said, pardon me, I did not intend to do it. She was gracious to the very end, and she didn't want even the executioner to think that she in any way wanted to insult him by stepping on his foot. So she apologized, and he cut off her head. <laughs> I, you know, and that was such a, it's a tragic, 
that's what's a tragic story because she was so misrepresented and the, all these pamphlets of pornography that were put out about her that she had no way. I kept thinking, gee, they mustn't have had any PR people. They had, she had all these people around her, but there were no PR people. She could have used some good PR. She could um, have. She could have. One of the things, too, that, that really struck me, and, it, it, and you write this, and I never stopped to think about it before, because I'm reading how, you know, when she was younger, that how she and the dolphin, they would go on the sled, um, with the horses and the snow to Paris with the gold bells ringing and, and everybody else would be freezing and the horses, the horses, their breath would freeze. But, you know, they had little heaters to warm them and they had mm-hmm. lots of furs and so they weren't cold and they were having a great time. And, uh, and then it struck me, though, when I'm thinking, what does she need all this excess? You know, the, the levee and the coucher, I mean, she didn't even want that. No, she but, didn't. But the point, she made a point, or actually you made the point in the book, but it came from her lips, is that how can I stop them from working? They've done this their whole life. They've, their families have worked for the monarchy. And if I were to say we can't do the levee, we can't do the coucher, then they would have no employment. So it was almost like all these rituals that she had to be to go through to be queen, and she was given employment. You made a point of uh, the jewels. Like she could really care less about some of the jewels and the necklaces. She would prefer to have flowers and her yes. petit trianon and, you know, all of that. But if she didn't buy a certain amount of jewels every year, that jeweler would go bankrupt. That's right. She got in particular trouble about the clothes she wore. When she first came to France, the fashion was to wear these enormous dresses made of silk. It took 36 yards to make a single uh, dress. And, of course, they were hideously expensive. And then when you trim them with jewels and expensive lace, the price just went up and up. Well, after a while, she got tired of them. They were not very comfortable. They were heavy and cumbersome and tightly corseted inside them. And she wanted to wear a more simple and natural dress. She liked a white muslin dress with maybe a little ruffle around the neck, tied at the waist with a sash, something that fell naturally along the lines of the body. And uh, she saved a lot of money by dressing that way in muslin instead of silk. But then the silk manufacturer said she is ruining the silk industry of France. And um, so she couldn't win. No, <laughs> you, know, so that's, you know, that's exactly what I came away from the book uh, really knowing about her from what you had written, is that she really was trying to not be excessive. She She had a life of abundance, but she really was trying to, you know, not be so out there with it. But the reality was is that she couldn't win whether she was being sparing or whether she was indulging herself. There were always her critics. Well, I want to give out um, a website. What website do you want people to go to? Oh, uh, they should go to the uh, one at my publishers at um, HarperCollins. And let me uh, see. It's HarperCollins.com. Um, or yeah. how about to your website, too, because you have a, they can go to SeniorJetterNaslin.com, right? Right. And the name of the book is Abundance. It is a novel of Marie Antoinette. It reads more like a memoir or a diary. Beautifully, beautifully written, well researched. I highly recommend this book. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, I I, I loved it. I really did not want this 
to end. So, Sino, we'll look forward to your future books. And, of course, she's also the author of Ahab's Wife and a number of other books. So check out her books. You're a beautiful, beautiful writer. Keep writing historical books because the research you do puts a whole new light on history. And maybe I should say her story. <laughs> I thank you for writing Marie's her story in a really beautiful way. So you've been listening to Sina Jeter Naslin, and I'm Cynthia Bryan. We'll be back in a minute on Star Style, Be the Star You Are, when I am joined by the beautiful Heather Brittany, and we're going to be talking Fem Talk. Stay with us. This business like no business can hold you in the dark. But if that voice keeps calling you. There's a website you may not know about. If you're thinking about starting your own work-at-home business, you need to visit rclarkservices.net. They're a team of inspired parents and work-at-home coaches with a goal to educate you on how to successfully run your home-based business. Visit rclarkservices.net to learn how you can have a successful future working from home that can start today. They offer free training, a free website, support, and leadership. You can work at home and love it. Bring in some extra money in your spare time or add some additional income to your current salary. You don't have to sell products or store inventory, and it only takes a small investment on your part to get started. Visit www.rclarkservices.net or call them at 1-800-246-8051. You can have a successful future working at home, and it can start today. Work at home and love it. Call 1-800-246-8051 or visit their website, www.rclarkservices.net. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Be the star you are. This is our tea for two, a mother-daughter brew. It's party time. I'm Cynthia Bryan. And I'm Heather Brittany. And we are the Stelladona Goddess Gals. Former First Lady of the United States, Nancy Reagan, is famous for having said, a woman is like a tea bag. You can't tell how strong she is until you put her in hot water. Well, throughout the centuries, feminists and women in general have been well maligned and been called terrible names. We just saw what happened to Marie Antoinette. So today, Heather and I are going to be talking, doing some fem talk, because we want to bust some of the myths, give you some straight facts on what it means to be a woman and to be a feminist. But before we go there, Heather, we have a special guest on the line with us all the way from the Emerald Green Isle of Ireland. It's Father Pat McGraw. Hey, Father Hi, Pat hi, Cindy. Hi, Heather. Hello, Pat. How are you, Father? Oh, sure. I'm great. I'm over the moon, and I'm delighted to hear you talking about uh, the dignity of woman, and uh, I think it's a, a glorious topic that you're on there right now. Oh, thank you. We know, we know that you have always been a very huge promoter of women in general and of all things positive. And what a treat to have you call in from Ireland. It's, it must be early in the morning or, or late at night or what well, is it? Well, I tell you now, Cindy, it's uh, a quarter to midnight. Ah, so not too, <laughs> not too late, not too late. Well, we were just talking a mi- minute ago about Marie Antoinette and uh, what happened with her. And so now Heather and I 
are going to be talking about um, feminism. Do you want to stay on the line and ask? Well, I'll stay on the line, yes. Okay, great. Well, Heather, let's talk. Let's start a little bit with the fem talk because we feminists have, you know, there have always been told, you know, they're bra burners or they're lesbians or they hate men. And, of course, there's always a different element. But the truth is, is that true feminists, they love men and women. They just really believe that women are equal. Exactly. See, one, that's sorry, one of the biggest misconceptions of feminism is that feminists are these man-hating, bra-burning lesbians, and that's the furthest thing from the truth. Now, of course, there is some individuals uh, that in the movement that are like that. That's how a stereotype is is made because there are some individuals. But what makes it a stereotype is that it's a very small amount. And I'm a feminist, and I am none of the above three things. Well, and I'm a feminist, and I've been married since 1975. And Father McGrath is a feminist, and he's a priest living in Ireland. (laughs) Right, Father? Yeah. Well, you see, I've always uh, been a very strong believer in the dignity of the human person, uh, whether it's man, woman, or child. And uh, I've always seen... uh, uh, the tremendous dignity, and I've always been a very strong believer in justice. Uh, that uh, justice uh, is prevailing, and there is equality, you know, uh, among all of us. And I think uh, uh, my whole work would be like a, a, a like team uh, together. Each accomplishes more. And very often, I notice a woman can draw well in my life, draw the best out of me. And I can also help draw the best out of them, you know. And I think this, it's always on uh, at the level. That, uh, it's deeper than relationship. I was thinking about this, Cindy and Heather. Uh, there was one thing that has fascinated my life, and it is the word spirit. And, like, I was thinking of you uh, there, uh, Heather, when you were sw- swimming and when you were cheering, Cindy. You know, and my word is digging deep. You know what I mean? When your back is to the wall, you have to dig deep. Right. Yeah, right. and you you understand what I'm saying there. Yeah, you have to dig deep. Well, and Heather is a women's study. She's uh, majoring in part of her major is women's studies. And Heather, talk to us a little bit about what it means digging deep for you, because well, you have you found a lot of differences since you've been studying this. Besides exactly. being a feminist, well, the whole thing is feminine. Everyone always thinks, you know, whenever I get into these heated conversations with people, they always think, oh, you know, feminism is just about women wanting to be equal to men. But feminism is about ending sexism and all the gender roles associated with it. So therefore, it benefits men, it benefits women and men. And the thing, the biggest thing in our society is the miscommunication, mis, uh, misunderstanding of sex and gender. Now, sex is what your biological genitalia entails. If you're male, female, or intersex. Gender is what we're socially conditioned to believe we are, the gender roles, the idea that, you know, men go out into the world, be the breadwinners, men, you know, the blue, they wear blue and they're rough and tough and girls are, are polite and pink and stay home with the children. Those are the gender roles, those are the norms that actually oppress us because therefore, you know, when a woman tries to go into the work world, there's often this idea that, you know, oh, she, you know, she must be a certain bleep and bleep, you know, because, you know, she's competing against men 
men. But then, you know, even if a man wants to stay home with the children, it's thinking that, oh, you, he must not be a good provider. Like, all these, these certain norms that we're trying to break down, that that is not. Feminism, it's a number of social, cultural, and political movements. And there's all these moral philosophy concerned with everything to stop the inequalities and the discrimination against women. And not to say that by any means is it a perfect movement, that actually one of the, the biggest contributors of oppression with it is within the own thing of who's feminist enough. There's so many different forms of feminism. There's liberal feminism, uh, radical feminism, multicultural feminism, and so many things that women feel that not just as a woman, you know, what else does that entail? I'm, I'm, you know, if you are an African-American woman or minority, there's certain things that that need to unite each other that often bring us apart, that slow this movement is trying to get people together by first going by saying that, you know, we are women, we've been impressed in this nation as each little step, in order to get bigger steps, we need to come together, that each voice needs to be heard. It's just so similar when we talk about people voting, how so many people are very apathetic not to vote because they say, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm just one person. What's my vote going to do? But, but, but then know, the person next to you. I want to jump in there here for a second about one person because one person can make a difference. You know, you may be just one person, but to the world, that one person could mean all the world. And so that it's really critical that as individuals we get involved and we voice our opinions and we vote is very important. And that's the only way there's ever going to be change, is if we do it one person at a time. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking there, Cindy, like, uh, I've always maintained the attitude, uh, be yourself, your only self, and nothing but yourself. And, and I think what we do is uh, we empower one another. And I think we, we uh, as men and women, we can be reflectors uh, to one another, and we can bring out one's value, one's worth, one's truth, and one's beauty. And I think, uh, myself as a teacher, I think uh, my life would be a, an outstanding uh, success if a person was able to say, it is good to be me. And if I can develop it, then I am good because I am. And I think uh, that's a very powerful statement. Yeah, I, I am good. The whole idea of of being who you are, owning uh, yourself, having integrity, and being upfront and honest about it. Yeah, and you see uh, what you call. I was uh, re- reflecting on that there uh, recently because if you look at your fingerprints, uh, uh, your fingers there, uh, Heather and Cindy, isn't it an amazing thing? that no two uh, fingerprints are the same. So each one of you is unique, original, and unrepeatable. Yeah, that's exactly. And that's what we try to say. That's what we're trying to say here on the show. And that's what Be the Star You Are I, you is see, all about. I, I, well, Heather, I, I, you in your class, I want to ask Heather just this thing. In, in classes that you are studying women's mm-hmm. studies, what seems to be the uniting force? What are you finding that students find can unite Unite well, and women and, and everyone. I think what's often so interesting that you don't really, midway through, at least in the first week or so, there's so many people, a lot of people that are taking the women's studies courses just because it's part of their GE, they just need to get it done. That's usually the case with a lot of the males in the class. And when people are asked, you know, at the beginning, the teacher asks the questions, you know, what is feminism, what is women's studies? 
people very much have, you know, the stereotypical view of, as we spoke before, you know, what a feminist is and how many women even, you know, shy away. They don't want to be considered a feminist. But slowly as it's being taught, but it's about sexism. It's about ending all the, that all these things, try to imagine a day without feminism. Uh, all the things, women, you know, without the right to vote. Women, we wouldn't be playing soccer and basketball. You know, we'd be cooking and sewing. And not to say, a thing that's kind of, I wouldn't say odd in a sense, but I can very much consider myself feminine. Pro to the max is about, you know, I, women are only making 76 cents on the dollar of every man, and it gets lesser and lesser uh, for different minorities. But a thing that, therefore, I, just because I'm a woman, I don't think I should get a job above anything. I feel if two people have the same education, they're equally as talented. That's, you know, it should be like that, not because, you know, he's a man, he won't have to take maternity leave. That's a discriminatory thing. But slowly, you know, the days, um, we said there's this article, uh, Day Without Feminism, and we started in learning how all the things, how it affects men's lives, is too, kind of uh, similar to, there was a movie called A Day Without Mexicans, so I'm talking about immigration, how, you know, really if it wasn't there, how so many people are in our play roles in our lives that we don't even realize, and how every, every person has a value, and everyone is to an equal value in it. I think the biggest thing that probably unites everyone in it is just seeing how really, and what, that we are, you know, due to genitalia factors is our only difference, but that we are all equal people and that each of us has gone through um, our own forms of oppression and struggling. I know a lot of people that are in different uh, ethnic groups within it, even um, the guys that are in class are slowly seeing that a lot of women faced a lot of um, segregation and discrimination as their, you know, their fellow ancestors had as well. So everyone's gone through things. No one is truly American. We all immigrated over here. So the thing is, is that why, once we established ourselves as a nation, did we begin to, you know, slowly eliminate and choose who would be the top of the top and who's the better? And that was the whole reason, you know, they came over here on this great voyage to get away from that oppression, to get away from the, the hierarchy of the top and the top and the bottoms and the bottoms. So I think it's really that whole united fact that we've all gone through so much and to see where what's gone on in our society, where we are now, and where we're going and how we can make it a better place. Well, and that's, I think that's the thing. It gets back to what Father Pat is saying. Yeah, and I think, uh, as I was, I was thinking, uh, Cindy, when we were in class there about 40 years ago, uh, the fundamental question I used to ask is, who am I? And, like, I am a human being. I am a human being. And what does that mean? I'm human. I got intelligence, emotions, and a body. But what about the being part? If I was to take a photograph of both yourself and Heather, uh, where would I uh, find generosity? Where would I find gentleness? Where would I find uh, kindness? Because I'm experiencing it over the radio. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that's the being part. And, be, uh, and being is really the most important thing. Yeah, I you see, we're going into the, the, the depth, you see, human being. And, 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 and that is the, the deepest part uh, of the person. And very often we have spoken about body and soul, but that's Greek philosophy, but really going down uh, deeper and deeper. And when we really begin to ask the question, the deepest need in every man, woman, and child, without exception, is to love and be loved. And 
uh, because you know you go deeper and deeper within yourself it's like peeling an onion and peeling off all the layers and yeah, going so down what, into I think what we have what we're what you're saying there too with love and be loved and what Heather is saying with busting some of the myths is we really have to get down to tolerance and that's what being a human being is is that we're all in this together we really are all one we all bleed the same we all have red blood we all have bones and skin and we're coming from the same kind of energy so once we we uh, value that and identify that every person is a human being that means we're all part of the human race <laughs> that we really, it doesn't matter what sex you are or what no, that, that, you are. That's a, yeah, and I think uh, it's just uh, seeing uh, the, the uniqueness of each person uh, for who they are. And, like, I used to get confused, you know, when I was growing up, uh, say, my fair lady, why can't a woman be more like a man? And that's, you know, the, the chorus there in that song. And that used to confuse me. Because mm-hmm. I used to say, why can't a man be a man? Why can't a woman be a woman? Mm-hmm. And yes, I think, and why can't we all just get along? Why can't uh, we all just get along and recognize that we each have strengths and the, the men we each have weaknesses? And we have weaknesses. So we don't have to, in order to be in a quote-unquote man's world, you don't have to become a man. Be a woman in your own world. Just be in the human world. Yeah, well, I, I want to thank you, Father Pat, for calling in all the way from Limerick, Ireland. What a joy to have the magnificent of McGrath on the show with us. He's on a radio show weekly there in Ireland, and he and I have been uh, pals for all of my life. He's one of my oldest, dearest friends, and I appreciate it. I was with him, and happy Jubilee, by the way. It's not that long ago I was in Ireland speaking. Heather... Thank you so much for um, busting some of the myths. And uh, for the tell Heather, happy birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Heather. Yeah. Right. We've got a birthday coming up, Heather. Yeah. So, so you all, the, all the best. Schlanta uh, uh, from Ireland. Schlanta from Ireland. <laughs> well, thank you all for being great listeners and allowing us into your life each week. Make sure you're tuned to this station every week with me, Cynthia Bryan, and, of course, with Heather Brittany. We want to be your personal growth success coaches. For more information about the charity, visit BeTheStarYouAre.org. For information about Cynthia Bryan, CynthiaBryan.com and HeatherBrittany.com, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y. And until we celebrate with you once again next week, we will hope that you are always encouraged, inspired, informed, and motivated. Read a book. It's like a garden in your pocket. I'm Cynthia Bryan. And Heather, are you still there? Alright, I'm going to try to put me has departed, but in any case, we say goodbye to you. Stay with us next week. Have a stellar week. Be cool. Be the star you are. Be the star you are. See you next week. Thank you for coming.